Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime documentary or series, and I get to talk to the people who made them. We dive deep into the backstories and get answers to questions raised by what we just watched. This week, episode five of our special mini-season on Unsolved Mysteries, volume two. I talk with director Sky Borgman, who joined us on the show last year to discuss the award-winning Netflix documentary, Abducted in Plain Sight. Now, she's back to discuss her latest work with Unsolved Mysteries. She directed Volume 2, Episode 5, Lady in the Lake. On an icy winter night nearly 10 years ago, police found 55-year-old Joanne Romaine's abandoned car outside her church in a Michigan suburb. They assumed she drowned in a nearby lake by suicide, but her body was recovered 70 days later in the Detroit River, 35 miles away from where police alleged she had entered the water. Her family suspects foul play. They have a list of suspects and will not stop until they find the truth about what happened to their mother. My mom was the most cautious, overprotective person in the world. For them to say that she left the church to walk across the street in 12 degree weather, dark of night, where it was icy and snowy, into a foot of freezing cold water to take her own life, it just doesn't make sense. A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch the entire episode of Unsolved Mysteries and then listen on to this podcast. Now, before you hear my discussion with Sky, take a listen to a discussion I had with my real-life partner in crime, my husband, Kevin Flynn. We break down the episode and share our reactions to the real-life mystery behind it. Hey, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. So we are talking about episode five of volume two of Unsolved Mysteries. It's called Lady in the Lake. Yes. This is about a woman named Joanne Romaine. About a decade ago, she vanished outside of her church where she'd been attending a prayer service in the evening. This is outside Detroit in the Gross Point area. Now, police immediately came to the conclusion, despite a lot of other clues that they seemed to ignore, that what happened was Joanne had walked across four lanes of traffic down a very steep embankment and walked into a very shallow lake of freezing water that was only about a foot deep. They immediately came to the conclusion that she committed suicide that way. I should say right up front before this discussion that you are a skeptic about that particular theory of this case. And I'd love to give you a chance to tell me why you think suicide is a more likely answer. By the way, I don't. I do not believe it was suicide at all. But why do you think that's more likely? I th- I think that while there are you know circumstantial bits of evidence, things that could go this way or that way, like the ripped bag, and because stuff doesn't necessarily make sense, doesn't mean that someone didn't do something rash. Hmm. And I think the greatest evidence to back up the idea that she took her own life is that what the footprints in the snow seem to show is somebody that tried to walk down, slipped and fell, handprints, butt prints in the snow, got up again, slipped and fell, down, moving towards the water, and then her body was found not in the in the, in the lake, but where that lake feeds into a river. With uh, except for a, a bruise on the arm, no other signs of foul play. To me, there just seems to be a lack of like real 
strong evidence that she was the target of some kind of hit or premeditated crime. And if it was street crime, putting the car where it was and leaving the bag and not really stealing anything, just it just doesn't add up to me. Right. So I think like the things that add up to me are the the official story, which is that she killed herself. Doesn't add up to me at all. Let okay. me tell you why. All right. There's a witness that very strongly asserts that the car was moved, that the car wasn't there before and it was there later. What's interesting to me mostly about this case is that Somebody who had shown no signs of mental anguish or depression dying by suicide is, you know, somewhat unusual. What makes it very unusual is the manner in which this suicide would have occurred. Walking into a very shallow body of water with a coat zipped up as if you were trying to keep warm in a situation where you have to walk very far. I mean, I can imagine many scenarios in which even if that were the case, she may have realized this isn't going to work because it was 100 feet or so out to where it was even deep enough to like sit in the water. I mean, this was a foot of water. Walking on a cobblestone street with heels is impossible. Very difficult. Walking on a rocky lake bottom in water in heels, literally impossible. I mean, it wouldn't, it's not doable. She would have taken her shoes off if she really wanted to walk into the water. So the fact that she was found the way she found casts a lot of suspicion on this method for me. And also, I got to tell you something, and I don't want to like make you feel bad, but I kind of believe the women in this story. Like the daughters say it didn't happen. There are three, you know, people that Michelle kind of put in the frame, but the three that she really puts in the frame are her uncle who was involved in some shady dealings, Her dad, uh, with whom Joanne was separating in an acrimonious separation, and this cousin, Tim, who apparently had a lot of anger issues and like a real feud with her and who was also a cop. I just think that there was a lot there that deserves to be weighed. Yeah, I'm actually uh, surprised that usually we don't get uh, named names. Right. Yeah, we didn't see anything from the father, but the uncle, who I think his name is John. Yes. The daughters have suspicion about him because apparently he owed money or he might have been involved in some dodgy things. Right. And so to me, that's like not very strong evidence. It's, but Yeah, it's less but it, likely. It puts somebody in the picture. All right. But didn't you think it was a little bit weird when John admitted that he did owe people money who were bad people and that if they did something to my sister... I didn't have any control over that. It was an odd thing to say. It was a very odd thing to say. It was a very odd thing to say. Right. But let's talk a little bit about the prospect of it being um, this guy, Tim, Joanne's cousin. Yep. Apparently, there's a lot of acrimony in this family, which is interesting because the immediate nuclear family that we see interviewed, they're all very tight. They talk about their family being very loving. You step back one step and this family is like... Not what I would describe as a tight and loving family. And when it when it comes to the extended family, there were a lot of historical di- disputes about money in yep. this family. Tim, Joanne's estranged cousin, and she apparently had a horrible argument on the phone that really rattled Joanne right. shortly before her death. What do you right. think about that? I mean, that is certainly the kind of thing that you would think police would look into, especially because, you know, they may have ultimately decided it was a suicide but for those two months, her body was was she was missing. Right. So I think you have to look into the possibility, however unlikely, that there might have been a crime here. Right. And by that, I mean I think that they should have talked a little bit to some of these people because we see like some archival coverage, news coverage. Right. And the daughter Michelle 
like very clearly, well, I shouldn't say very clearly, she insinuates that there are problems within the family and they suspect people have killed her and not that she would do anything to herself. Right. Right. Which nobody thinks somebody is. But anyway, I digress. You know where I stand on that. The other thing that bothers me that you mentioned earlier, you are taking the cops' assertions that what those photos show is a butt print and handprint and footprints in the snow as what they are. I looked at the photos again. I went to the episode today. I hit freeze frame on those photos. To me, they could be anything. They don't necessarily look like that at all. And we hear- You think they're man-made? No, it, yeah, they could be Human man-made. Made yeah, I mean, it, but it could have been from anybody. But it's it could be from anybody. Yeah. But right, you agree, though. It could have been somebody- It's evidence of somebody traversing from the top down to the edge of the water, Kevin, right? Kevin, it could have been literally right? somebody throwing a bag of trash in the snow it into the water. It could have been, but- it, Just as likely, as far as I'm concerned. I don't there's, think just as likely. There's no footprints in oh, the photo. I love these discussions. The footprints were never determined by a actual like method that would show there were footprints there were in no, the snow. Yeah, there were no photographs. These maybe. were the same cops. We hear them in the- the deposition from the lawsuit, who just assert that they knew it was a suicide and that was their blinder from the beginning. They didn't, they never looked at another possibility. They never did. They didn't have a body. They didn't have anything. What if she had been missing? What if she'd been kidnapped? One might make an argument that the physical evidence around the scene may have been different, but you're right. I mean, that's what happens when someone gets snatched up. Right. Is that a crime scene anymore or is there a crime scene someplace else? Right. So if she was snatched up, and then was killed later on, it it was in a different location. Right. So you're not going to find a large amount of blood or a shell casing or something there. Something else could have happened, or the absence of some evidence might be indicative of something not happening there, right. but it's not cut and dry any way you right. look at it. exactly. So there's one big reason why I don't buy what the cops say they believe to be true about the scene. Why is that? The purse. So let me tell you about the purse. All right. We hear that she purchased this designer bag, which I can verify was, in fact, a designer bag. I found it online today. And she had only had it for a few weeks before she disappeared. I can tell you, as a woman with a designer bag, that if my bag had sustained like a big rip or some damage, I would not be carrying that bag. The whole purpose of carrying that bag is that you've got your cute new bag and you carry it. And if it gets damaged, you send it to the cobbler or whatever to get repaired. You do not continue carrying it around. The other thing that really bothered me about that whole passage with the bag was the cop's assertion that no, it couldn't have been somebody struggling with her on the arm with which she was holding the bag because otherwise the buckles or strap would have been broken. Absolutely not. Grab it. Yeah. Absolutely not. The flimsiest, most easily damaged part of that bag were those skinny leather ruffles. A well-made bag has well-made buckles and well-made straps by design, on purpose. These well-made bags have sturdy straps and buckles so that they can't be snatched from somebody's shoulder. So I just, I, I'm not saying that like the the rip itself is proof that she was murdered. What I'm saying is she was targeted for her bag. The cops' assertion yeah. that that is proof she wasn't is completely off to me. I have a third scenario which might bridge the difference between you and I. Okay, I'd like to hear it. What if it were an accident? Hmm. What if she leaves her bag in the car? For whatever reason, she decides she wants to go walk out by the lake to meditate or something. She zips up her jacket to brace herself from the cold. She's got her keys because she's planning on coming back. She doesn't need her bag because she's not going to light up a cigarette or make a phone call or whatever might be in the bag that she would use. And she gets to the edge, and she slips and falls in. Hmm. And she drowns in the lake, 
and her body washes up, you know, two months later. Where's her phone? All of her maybe, other belongings. Maybe she were. had her phone. Maybe it fell out while mm-hmm. she was in the water. I don't want to get too graphic here. Yeah. But if she had, if if what you described had happened, yeah, they would have found her immediately because those search teams were looking in that lake immediately. They were not looking in that lake days later. They were looking in that lake that night, the next day. They say it was a difficult. No, thing, yeah. they were looking in the lake. In, that's that is the rub here. They were looking in that lake in that. So spot. you believe she was put in the water someplace else? I do. I believe that she was for a long time. Uh, well, I believe she wasn't dumped. In, I mean, she, right? I believe she she had to have been taken somewhere relatively close to the crime scene because yeah. they put her car back quickly. Yeah, I believe, and I don't want to be too grim because obviously this is a real person with a real family that's grieving. I believe she was murdered right there. I believe she was attacked. I believe she was murdered. I believe she was put in her own murdered car. murdered in the church parking lot. Mm-hmm. I believe she was put in her own car. Murdered in the car. Maybe, or maybe murdered in the car. I believe she was abducted or killed and put in the car right there, that they drove to a place they could put her body in the water and then return the car where it was. That's what I believe happened. Without any real evidence for any of that? There's not any real evidence for what you're talking about either, Kevin. Actually, I, th- I think there's more evidence for what I'm saying than what I you're disagree, saying. and that's why it is an unsolved mystery. That's why it's an unsolved, it's a good episode. It is. I actually do think of, of the episodes we've watched this cycle this is the case that I am most interested in the tips that come in. Because I, I really do think there is something here regarding one of these men that Michelle pointed to. I mean, it might be pool playing John. I don't know. But it might a- be Tim. It might be David, the dad who's not in the episode. I don't know. But I, I think there's something here. But didn't the family's own investigators say, look at these three individuals and say. One did. They hired nothing- three investigators. Yeah. One of them is still working with the family and believes that something happened to Joanne. Mm. Yeah. So I guess we'll have to agree to disagree on this one, Kevin. It happens sometimes. It does. And when a tip comes in that proves me right, you're going to have to eat your hat. That's fine. I'll eat my hat. I mean, the bottom line is what we really want is for this family to get some answers, right? Absolutely. All right, Kevin, thanks for watching Unsolved Mysteries with me. It's always fun. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks again to Kevin Flynn for joining me. You are my favorite person to watch Netflix with even when we don't agree on the unsolved mystery. Kevin's an Emmy Award-winning former TV journalist, my true crime co-author and co-host of our other true crime podcast, Crime Writers On. He also hosts the podcast, These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast. Now, here's my interview with director Sky Borgman. Sky, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Tell me more about your background in film. I think a lot of us... Probably all of us, anybody listening to this podcast, probably watched Abducted in Plain Sight. But I'm curious about how long you've been directing and what led you to this career in film. Yeah, I so I haven't been, I've been in the industry for about 20 years, and I really started as a director of photography and mostly in documentaries, but also in scripted format and loved it. I mean, I love the image, right? And I love telling a story through imagery. And so I spent a long time sort of perfecting that and looking at cameras and lenses and especially lighting. So I approached this from a very visual perspective, really, and shot a lot of documentaries um, kind of all over the world with other directors and was always working on my own documentary projects. And really with Abducted in Plain Sight, that was one that I 
kind of took on, was a director, producer, and cinematographer because we didn't have a huge budget for that. And spent five years of my life making it, doing a lot of the work myself on it. Um, I did some of the editing, but not much of the editing, more sort of managing all of that. And and that film really was what kind of um, transitioned me into being a little bit more of a, a full-time director in the documentary genre. Now, I will say, if anybody who's listening to this podcast hasn't watched Abducted in Plain Sight, buckle your seatbelts for one of the most bananas documentaries you will ever watch. It is a really compelling and twisty and turny and very strange true crime story, and I don't want to spoil it any more than that, but check it out if you haven't. I'm curious about this story, though, and I'm curious about your intersection with Unsolved Mysteries. Were you a fan of the show when it originally aired? I was absolutely a fan of the show when it originally aired. I mean, Robert Stack and his voice and the music and everything just really has always stuck with me. And I loved watching the show. I mean, I'd sit there at night and watch it, and I thought it was just incredible. And I think it's, you know, I mean, from a very early age, I was really interested in mysteries and trying to solve them and figure out who done it and so much so that I created a detective agency when I was in grade school and it was called the Borgman Detective Agency and <laughs> my friends Amy Gooing and Amy Davenport and Val Steidel who all lived kind of around would come over every Friday and we would solve mysteries and we lived in an apartment building and different people in that apartment building would come up with mysteries for us to solve and we charged 25 cents a mystery and we would go around and solve mysteries that people made up for us and one of them was uh the mystery of the missing goat we found a goat in our yard and we had to find the owner and um Hmm. that was that was probably our our most our toughest mystery to solve, but they were a neighbor down the street. So it, it all worked out. <laughs> you were like a real life Harriet the Spy then growing up, huh? It was Nancy Drew for me. Yes. Of course it yes. was. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm dating myself a little bit, but. <laughs> no, you're not. Are you a Nancy George or Bess fan? I was also a huge reader of the Nancy Drew books growing up. Was Nancy your girl? She was my girl. She was my girl. I just absolutely adored reading those books. Hmm. Now, one detail I'd love to understand about this lady in the late case is how the police came to suspect Joanne was missing in the first place. She was last seen at about 7.15 at her church. And in the episode, the cops went to her home after nine and asked Michelle, her oldest daughter, if she was missing. How did the police come upon her car in the first place? And what made them suspicious that she was missing? Yeah, it's such a mysterious set of circumstances there because they came upon her car in the church parking lot and it seems like they immediately came to the conclusion that she was missing, um, which is strange. Like if you see a car parked there, you I don't know, you just, I can't imagine kind of just immediately suspecting someone was missing. What's strange about it is that the car, she was driving Michelle's car, her daughter Michelle's car, and the car was registered to Michelle And they came knocking on the door and said, your mom is missing. Michelle has a hard time understanding how they would have known her mom was driving the car. Whether or not they found her identification in the purse or not that was left behind, we don't know. There's a lot of... There's a lot of mystery for sure surrounding this officer that knocked on the door. When we searched for police reports, we were not able to really find anything mentioning the name of the officer. Michelle doesn't remember the name of the officer. So, But Michelle definitely feels like it's odd that they came saying, your mom's missing, 
in such a short period of time after they'd sort of identified this car sitting by itself in the church parking lot. I was curious about that as well. And I was also curious about something that gets mentioned in the episode a couple of times where Michelle certainly seems to believe her mother's car was moved, that it had been in the parking lot or somewhere else, and then it was moved into its place on the street where it was found. Uh, Do you believe the car was moved? If so, like, how do we know the car was moved? So I do believe the car was moved. I The reason we know that the car was moved was because there was an eyewitness that was able to identify where the car was parked when they left the church. When the cops found the car, it was parked two or three spaces closer to the water. So it was parked in a different place from when the eyewitness saw it and from when the cops found it. One of the things that strikes me about the scene is that we see this very... Um, I want to call it like a perfunctory photo, even though that's not the right expression. It's just this like snapshot of these prints in the snow. And we hear, you know, one of the cops saying, well, this is clearly a butt print and two handprints and then footprints. You show that photo a bunch of times in the episode, and it could be a lot of things. It doesn't necessarily have to be that. Did that also strike you that, you know, they're sort of describing something very assuredly as being one thing? when it doesn't really seem clear at all that that's what we're looking at. Yeah, I've never been able to see footprints in those pictures. Yeah. I mean, I look yeah. at them. The butt prints, I'm like, okay, yeah, I can see I can see what is conceivably a butt print in there. But mm. the footprints and just that they can say it looks like a high heel boot print and all of that, it just doesn't, that I could never see in the photo. And it's also really strange to me because... There was no snow around her car. I mean, clearly in the pictures you can see of her actual car with the crime scene tape around it, there's not really any snow on the drive. And so to have, you know, there were never any boot prints or any prints whatsoever that they took pictures of leading from her car to the lake. So all they could find were those what they call boot prints or butt prints or whatever was around that lake area. So... I mean, even to say that it was Joanne is a bit of a stretch, in my opinion. Right. It could have been somebody who'd been there earlier in the day who maybe dropped something in while on a walk or wanted to see something more closely or take a photo. Exactly. It could have been a lot of things, right? I mean, Sal Rastrelli says that they should have taken these 90-degree boot photos of the footprint and figured out what size it was and figured out all of these different things and taken it to some sort of a, a shoe print expert and... That never happened. Um, Jensen says that in his deposition tape that that never happened. And so there's just a couple of instances here where it just seems like they didn't go the distance. Yeah. Now, we do see Daniel Jensen. He is the chief of the Gross Point Farms Public Safety Department. He is in those interviews giving some, you know, to me, very frustrating responses. He seemed to have very little will to investigate clues. Uh, he seemed to be very comfortable with the immediate assumption that this was a suicide. Uh, Of course, we hear in the episode that there's no current right there in the water. The water's extremely shallow. The search happened pretty much immediately after she disappeared. What do you make of his frustrating responses? Why is he so stuck? I don't know. I mean, it's such a good question. I think, look, I think that Michelle has, at this point when the depositions have taken place, I mean, obviously there's they're trying to find out what happened. Michelle and her sister are trying to find out what happened. I know that she has been incredibly frustrating to them. So I think that's part of it. Whether or not it was, you know, he feels like they did a good investigation. I don't know. It seems very clear to me that they didn't, that they rushed to a conclusion that was very easy. And 
I don't know, you know, I mean, part of part of his deposition and watching the entire deposition is even more frustrating. So it doesn't feel like they put the work into it. And and that's also part of the mystery. I mean, why? Why didn't they? And we searched for reasons for that. We searched for some kind of answer. But we could never really find anything like why didn't they do more of an investigation? It really surprised me, Sky, talking about the way in which a potential suicide would have happened. And I don't want to, you know, be triggering or talk about, you know, suicide in a gratuitous way at all. However, it is a very, very difficult way for one to end their own life, to walk into a body of water, walk far enough out, fully clothed in freezing cold weather. I mean, there's a reason why this is not something that you see all the time, because there is like sort of a natural response to being in the water that people have, even if they're intentionally, where they're sort of a natural bodily response to fight drowning. It just seems like such an unlikely immediate leap that she would walk across this road, if this is truly her intention, and, and walk into a very shallow body of water if that was her intention. It just, it, to me, I can't believe the cops came to that conclusion immediately. Did you think the same thing? Absolutely. I mean, and and that was even more evident when I went to the actual location. And in the episode, we really tried to kind of show everybody that steep incline leading down and and how challenging it would be to go down there and how scary. I mean, and I think we did an okay job of showing it. But when you're actually there trying to walk down in like I was wearing boots, you know, with a good grippy sole and it was challenging was for me. No, 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 not in the film. Like when I was, <laughs> I was down say. by the camera. I was behind the camera. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> all right. I, I just kept wondering, by the way, during that recreation, like about all those people driving by and what they oh, must I know. think watching this I man know. helping this woman who <laughs> clearly should not have been walking down that embankment in those boots. Right. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. So we, um, you know, it was really scary walking down there. And, and when we were there, we shot the episode in the summertime and the water level was probably four or five feet high higher than when uh, allegedly, right, uh, Joanne walked down there. So when she actually walked down there, the water was only two feet high. So even if you couldn't swim, you would sit up and there's just no, I, I agree completely. I mean, there's just no conceivable way that she would have walked across at that point. And if you go down, you know, 50 feet in either direction, it's a lot easier to get to the water than it is directly across from the church. So a, there were easier ways to get to the water. B, I mean, of all places to choose to drown yourself in two feet of water, it's just, I think it would be almost impossible unless she was unconscious beforehand. I mean, that's a possibility. Or unless there was foul play or unless it didn't happen there. I mean, I just don't think it happened there. Right. And I don't think she committed suicide. And of course, later we get some details about how she was found with all of her clothing zipped up, with her shoes on and intact. And really, there's just no sign that she, I mean, if you think about it, if somebody's intention were to walk into freezing cold water to die, would they bundle up all of their clothing to try and keep warmer? I mean, it doesn't, it makes no sense at all to me. It makes no sense to me either. And that coupled with the fact that, you know, her family says that she was terrified of the water and terrified of the dark. None of it, none of it makes sense to me. 
Now, her daughter, Michelle, is very dogged. We hear from her a lot in the episode. And the family hired three different private investigators that we meet, uh, Rastrelli, Randall, and Lewis. Can you tell us more about how they worked on this case? Did they collaborate? Did they work independently? Were they hired at the same time or at different times? They worked, for the most part, pretty independently because they were hired at different times. So Bill Randall was the first to come on. And I I think that Michelle had hired him just a, a few weeks or maybe even a month after Joanne had disappeared. And so she hired him to really look into it and look into all of these different people that she had as suspects and see if he could find anything. The next person, um, not long after that, really was Sal, because he's such an expert in and a water guy, right? So he went out Mm. there, he did the walk down the embankment, he actually got in the water and walked out the 100 yards or 200 yards or however long that is, and was able to walk out for such a long distance in his rubber boots and go, wait a minute, like, for the body with no current to sort of travel 100 yards without with a search party out there without seeing it with this sandy bottom in all these black clothes with two feet of water, it just didn't seem again, it's just so mysterious. It didn't seem like that was possible at all to him. And he was also looking into the fingerprinting and he was looking into the investigation and those photos that weren't, in my opinion, sort of properly logged and filmed. And, you know, there was no marker points on them or anything like that. So he looked at all of that. And then Scott Lewis is still working with Michelle. And there's still he's been working with her. um, He's the last one to come on to the case. And he's been working with her pretty consistently for the last few years in trying again to figure out what happened. I mean, that's the one thing about Michelle is she's, she's never going to stop. I mean, she's gonna until the day she dies, she's going to be searching for justice for her mom. Now, one of the details that Michelle brings up in the episode is her mother's purse, that it was new, right? She just purchased it shortly before this incident. And it was torn in a way that to me, does seem consistent with potentially a struggle or just even with, you know, getting caught in something or grabbed. And it just seems like the police are just completely unwilling to in any way say like this damaged purse. First of all, if if you look at this woman and you sort of look at the purse itself, you realize to me anyway, as a woman, if this purse were ripped, she would not have been carrying it that day. Right. Like we all know that. Like if you have a designer item and it gets damaged, like you get it fixed. You don't carry it around with a big tear in it. It's just not something you do. But they seem like very unwilling to connect that to any potential foul play. And they don't fingerprint it, which shocks me. It's shocking. And the other thing that's shocking to me, too, is that when when they talk about the purse, they're like, well, they would have, you know, there would have been a broken buckle or there would have been a broken strap. And I kind of... No way. No, I know. <laughs> I agree. Like, I just sit there going, if I was carrying that purse and someone went to grab me, they'd grab, like, that could fly out from the body. And you would grab one of those ruffles. And the way that ruffle was ripped is, like, yep. totally how it would be ripped. And all right. those strings on it. And so it definitely seems... <sighs> The investigation, if nothing else, was just nobody followed through on anything. And there were so many points where it just brings up almost more questions than it would have if they had done a little bit more of an investigation into it. 
That's right. And it, again, is the point of view of, I hate to say it, men who don't understand how well-made bags are made. Right. The straps and buckles will not give first. The details will give first. Yeah, exactly. We all know that. They're ruffles. I mean, maybe, I like, mean, right. It's the and, and they were also the approaching it as if this was some sort of, like, purse snatching incident, which this clearly was not because her purse was left behind and there was nothing missing from, you know, the purse, except, of course, we'll hear later her phone was missing. But it's not like she had a bunch of money missing. And they and they're saying like this was a it wasn't that I mean, it just is very clear to me that it wasn't. And I'm glad to hear that you feel the same way. Yeah. In fact, there was quite a bit of money still in her purse. Like there was Mm. no money. She had a fair amount, like a substantial amount of money that was left in her purse. So it's just strange. It's very, very strange. So do you have a sense of how her body ended up so far away in the Detroit River? First of all, geographic interesting fact that I always forget until I saw the map in the recreation in your documentary that there is part of Canada that's south of the United States. And this is that part. So that the, you know, her body, the police say travel, was it 17 miles or 30 miles? It was far away, right? 35 miles away. Yeah. That's a long way. 35 miles away from a place where she ostensibly entered where it was only a foot deep. Do you have a sense or a theory about how her body ended up where it ended up? Uh, I've got a theory. I mean, it's completely, you know, just my theory is that she that she was killed and that her body was dumped somewhere else. And Hmm. I think the biggest reason I feel that way is because, I mean, we were out on the water and we we took these boats that, you know, Michelle, you see that in the film, you know, Michelle and uh, Scott are on the boat with us and and we travel to Bablo Island where Joanne's body was found. And we only traveled 10 miles. And we took the boats from much farther down. And it took us hours to get there, to get the 10 miles, because you can only go so fast in that waterway. And we were like, wow, this is a long way. I mean, this is a really long way. And we were only going a third of the distance. And so for me, imagining, and I don't, you know, I don't want to bring up anything that's kind of too graphic or anything, but imagining the way that her body was found. And then if her body had been in the water for, 70 days, which they say it was from the night she disappeared until the night she was found. If she disappeared that way in that water by the church, her body would have been in the water for 70 days. That waterway, there are giant, giant tugboats. There are, I mean, the ships that go through that channel, they're delivering massive amounts of goods. Right. Her body was pretty much intact. And so for me to travel that distance, to be in the water for 70 days, to travel the 35 miles and to have the clothes in such good shape, to have her in such good shape, just seems impossible. I felt that way, too, honestly. And, it, the, you know, the, the conditions as they were described, as we heard in the episode, just didn't really seem to match in any way the theory that the police put forward. The second half of the episode pivots to some theories about potential suspects in the crime. I found this very interesting. First off, can I just make the complete viewer observation that Michelle repeatedly describes her family as being very close and very loving. However, there was a lot of conflict seemingly in this family as well. Yeah. So I think when she's talking about a close and loving family, it's really amongst her brothers and sisters um, because there is a lot of strife and it 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 stems from money it stems from an inheritance that uh, that Michelle certainly feels was disproportionately uh, distributed between her mother and her siblings can you talk a little bit more about that because you touched on it in the episode and it does seem to be the source of conflict between Joanne and 
uh, other members of her family. But, you know, I think you're very tasteful in not digging in too much of the details. But was that really a big deal in that side of the family? According to Michelle, it was a huge deal. It, Mm. you know, drove the family apart. And I can't tell you, I mean, it's just, it seems like money always drives families apart when it comes to inheritance. And it's such a such a weird thing to me, but I understand how it happens that um, when her grandmother passed away, the money, and it was a substantial estate, you know, that was split between Joanne and her brothers and sisters. And, um, and she got less money and felt like she should have gotten more and that other brothers and sisters got a little bit more and or substantially more. And so it was, it was really what started a massive rift in this family. Now, Michelle does name in one of her statements some potential suspects in the case. One of the suspects she names that I found interesting, but I'm sure there are reasons why you didn't go more into it in the episode, was her dad. Um, Of course, we hear that Joanne was separated from Michelle's dad at the time. And, you know, a lot of people who've been in contentious divorces know that sometimes conflicts can be intense. And sometimes those conflicts can kind of lead you places that you never thought you would go. But it seems like from the interviews in the episode that he's pretty clear of this. Is that your sense as well? It is my sense. I mean, look, there's always there's always the possibility. And I, you know, I mean, when you think about the emotions that happen, and especially because it was Joanne's choice to leave the marriage, it was not his choice. I mm. mean, he wanted to stay in it and and she didn't. And there was a lot of I think there was a lot of anger. I think there was a lot of hurt feelings between the two of them. And so hmm. through the investigations, I think, that happened with Bill Randall, uh, with the thing is, like, Michelle doesn't really put any sort of hope or any sort of credence into the police department. But in the people that she hired, she's certainly gotten to the point where she doesn't feel like her father was part of it. Right. John, yeah. uh, Joanne's brother, who you interview in the episode, and he talks about being really close to his sister. And then... We hear that Michelle has put him in the frame as potentially being a suspect. And then you talked to him about that. What was that like? All I could think of was, oh, my God, Sky. Like, at some point, he was playing pool in the documentary. And I was like, okay, we're going to use these shots as B-roll underneath when we talk about how we all suspect him (laughs) having been involved in this crime. What was that like talking to him and filming those scenes, knowing that he had been put in the frame by a relative as potentially being a suspect in this disappearance? I mean, he is a character. Uh, There's no doubt about that. And he's much more of a character, I think, than really comes across in in the documentary. But he's he's a very interesting guy. And look, the simple fact of the matter that he talks to us and he kind of says, yeah, it could have been somebody, somebody that I had contact with. Well, in 2009 and 10, I was struggling financially. The real estate depression hit. It was awful for everybody that had any real estate liabilities at all. So I owed a lot of money to certain people. It's possible that someone I had dealings with could have murdered Joanne. I can't control that. And I'm like, wow. Wow, really? Like, you actually kind of do have a little bit of control over that. I mean, maybe not. I found that kind of creepy, honestly. He was a really, really fascinating character. I mean, and of course, you know, we'd spent a lot of time with Michelle and Kelly leading up to that interview, and they were just like... John, you know, you got to be careful about John. And so, you know, but look, let's face it. I mean, you don't really get the sense of it, but it's like, I'm there. My DP is like three inches away from me. The second camera operator is seven inches over on the other side. There's a gaffer, there's a grip. I mean, there's a, you know, a a full crew of people. So like, 
And I just never feel fear. And more than anything, I just wanted to figure out who this guy was. But look, Mm. I think it's definitely a possibility that there are people in his life that are capable of killing people. And if you get on the wrong side of that, you know, it could be more detrimental to kill somebody that he loves than it is to kill him. And so that too, I mean, that's the thing is like all of these people that are suspects, I kind of think any one of them could have done it. Right. I'll be honest with you. I did too. I mean, I I really did. I think I have the same sense that you do. And another sort of creepy detail, which I'm sure, I mean, obviously not related to the actual incident. It can't be. But the fact that Joanne's rosary was missing from her pocket when she was found, but then John pulls out this rosary and says it's one that his sister gave him. I was just like, man, that is just... Maybe unintentionally, probably unintentionally, incredibly creepy moment, right? Like he's, he had, we just heard him talk about how, you know, someone he knew could have killed his sister, but that wouldn't have been his responsibility. And then he's pulling out this rosary, which a rosary like it was, you know, a missing clue. I don't know. I found that very haunting. It's haunting. And he is a very haunting guy, too. I mean, mm. he's very, you just never know which direction he's going to turn. You never know what he's going to say. You never know what he's going to do. And so, so he's definitely a major suspect still. But look, he's he's still close with, with Michelle and he's still determined to kind of seek justice. And look, whether or not, you know, a lot of people say, well, the, the person who did it, they're always right in the middle of things, you know, maybe he did do it, but he's paying for billboards and for like skywriters and for everything because he and Michelle both believe absolutely it was Tim Matuk that did it. Um, was it? Who knows? Well, let's talk about Tim Matuk. He was a local cop in the area at the time, and he is Joanne's estranged cousin, correct? Yes. Yep. So what do you know about his career as a cop? Did he have a relationship with the Gross Point Farms and Woods Police Departments? Was he a cop that these cops knew? He, I mean, I think that that area, Gross Point and the surrounding area in the, the greater Detroit area, all of the cops kind of know each other. I mean, these are kind of uh, they're kind of mom and pop's cop stations, and this is a very affluent. Both of these woods and farms are very affluent neighborhoods. There's not a lot of crime that's going on there, so there aren't you know giant police stations that have hundreds of of cops in it. It's not New York. It's not Chicago. It's not L.A. You know, they're little tiny police stations, and these communities are close together, and so all of these cops kind of know at least you know, of each other, if not know each other. So, so he knew cops um, in that area. I think really, what leads Michelle to think it was Tim Matuk and probably John to a, a great extent too, but, but really, to Michelle is the phone records that came out and where you could see her calling a security company and trying to get some sort of security, it seems that that Joanne was trying to get somebody to protect her. And this phone call uh, that Michelle was present for, she knew that Tim had called Joanne. She knew Joanne was very upset by this call. And that happened only a few weeks before Joanne disappeared. And, and from from Tim, who, you know, they hadn't spoken in a really, really, really long time. So it's it's Michelle's belief that Joanne found out something that she shouldn't have known, and that Tim killed her. I mean, who knows, we were never able to find any evidence that speaks to that. Could it have happened? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was unclear to me, too. Like, what was the nature of the conflict between this cousin and Joanne? Was it about money still? Was it something related to the inheritance? 
I don't know. It's hard. It's hard for me to think it was still related to the inheritance. I think what makes more sense to me really is that the inheritance and the disproportionate splitting of that inheritance sort of was the wedge that drove the family members apart. And every little thing that kind of happens after that just sort of beats that wedge in deeper and deeper and deeper. And and so I think it started there, but I don't think that this conflict, this telephone conflict that happened right before Joanne disappeared, I don't think that really had anything to do with the inheritance. I don't know, but it seems like so much time had passed since that had happened that it's just kind of a wound that has that is healed. It's still maybe sensitive to touch, but it's it's not something that's that's immediate. And and why call out of the blue and talk about something that has been going on for years at that point? Right, right. And do you know if John, uh, Joanne's brother, has ever helped the investigation by, I don't know, naming some of the people that he thought might have beef with him and then go after his sister? Has he given up any of that information or does he just sort of talk about it vaguely as he did in the episode? He talks about it pretty vaguely. I mean, I think um, yeah. I, I, I think that he could get himself into a lot of trouble outside of the law if he spoke names wow. specifically. So I don't think he's ever really named names beyond beyond Tim. I mean, he always names Tim and he says that's where he think that's the person he thinks killed his sister. Uh, but beyond that, he has not named names. I'll tell you, Sky, watching this episode and, you know, seeing Michelle and talking about the family and seeing these photos of Joanne with her kids, it seems like there was this very normal, loving nuclear family right on the periphery of a lot of like shady stuff, yeah. especially with regard to John. It's like there are people he can't name that he's in some sort of trouble with that he owes money to. And we all know what that sounds like. Right? Oh, yeah, we do. And, and this this family is just living their life sort of right next to it. I mean, it seems like there are a lot of reasons Joanne could have been calling that security firm. There are. I mean, there are a ton of reasons. Um, What's really significant to me is that this family has been this family for years and generations and the inheritance happened and and that sort of you know split everybody apart but like why and Michelle specifically talks about this why was she so sort of twitterpated in those last weeks before her death like there was something that shifted I have no idea what it was Michelle doesn't know but it seems like she all of a sudden this fear was amped up like a big level like she wasn't calling security people months before that or the years before that like there wasn't the threat there but all of a sudden now before she disappears she's calling a security company she's acting differently she's looking for people following her like her behavior absolutely shifted hmm. do you think it's possible though that whoever hurt joanne was a stranger or you know not related to any of this other stuff going on i mean look anything anything is possible do i I personally don't think so. I mean, I think it was somebody that knew her. Um, I, I look. I guess anything is possible, but I don't believe it. I think they knew. I think they knew that she was going to church, and I think they saw an opportunity to kind of do something when she was at church and when she was alone. Were there any details of the case that you would have loved to include that you found particularly intriguing that uh, had to be cut for time or other reasons? I mean, there's there's certainly a lot. Um, the 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 strife with the family, I guess, is one of them. Um, there's just a very you know the timeline. I find it really curious that such a massive search party was 
so quickly dispatched to look for this. I mean, like, it just seems like it all happened so fast without really having any solid information that this woman went in the water here, like a butt print in the snow. And all of a sudden, the Coast Guard is out two hours later. I mean, it just seems it seems like that happened very quickly. And that was always kind of mysterious to me. And um, I don't know, that's probably the most mysterious thing. Look, Michelle has boxes and boxes and boxes of theories and information. And she and Scott Lewis have been working on various different investigations of their own, trying to to find out who did this. And, and she has a lot of theories. But again, nothing, we haven't been able to really corroborate anything. And that's, that's part of I think, you know, the, the mission of Unsolved Mysteries is to, to put the facts out there, um, to have them be facts. And, and so many people have different opinions. I mean, even, you know, Bill, when he says he found people to be credible, I, you know, I mean, that's his opinion. And somebody else may come along and have another opinion. I mean, there, there's so many different opinions in this. But the actual evidence is just kind of thin. Right. And uh, Bill Randall, at the end of the episode, really seems unsure. He doesn't seem like he's landed in a particular place about whether or not it was suicide or homicide. That's got to be frustrating, right, for the family. But do you have any sense of why he's unwilling to land when you, for instance, are very comfortable saying you don't think it was a suicide? Yeah, because he's an ex-FBI agent and I'm not. I mean, <laughs> right, right. I think that's part of it. You know, I mean, I go from my gut a lot more and I sort of look at things and with not quite so much of an educated eye, I think. And I kind of go in with thinking about sensitivities and listening to Michelle and kind of formulating my own opinions where he really he really has a a method of looking at the facts and what you can back up and who he believes and who he doesn't, which I do that a lot. I'm like, who do I believe? Who do I not believe? Um, but again, there's mm. no there's no sort of there's no facts in that. That's just sort of a gut feeling. So I think really where where Bill Randall comes from is is that he can look at these facts on paper and kind of divorce himself a lot easier than I can from the emotions of it. And he's really just looking at the facts. And I think the facts that he was able to bring together kind of leave him at a place where he doesn't know. Um, I look at the facts and I kind of, and I, I think I'm also a little bit more willing to question the facts brought forth from law enforcement, and he may not be quite so willing to do that. Um, it's always been really interesting for me because just in, in making documentary films, you know, you're always looking for something to corroborate. And the best source of corroboration is a police report. So, so I don't know. I mean, I think you, I think you have to listen to your gut a little bit more. And I think that, that people who are more sort of just evidentiary sort of driven may lose out on a couple of those little, little nuances. But then if I'm making my judgment completely on nuance, uh, there's a problem there too, you know? Mm. Well, you know, full disclosure, if you listen to my conversation with Kevin about this episode, which is part of this podcast, he also has a lot of doubts about the theory about a homicide. And something about uh, about this in this particular case, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to speculate, obviously, but it's like 
listen to the women around you. You know, yeah. it's it's obviously when you're talking about issues of mental health and all these things that are complicated, you have all these women in the story, Michelle in particular, saying, this is not what happened. Look at my mom's purse. I can tell you what was going on. And it just does seem to be, you know, a lot of willingness among, um, you know, the men, except for John, sort of around this story to be a little bit more credulous, not have that sort of sense of, of like something's wrong here. You know what I mean? I don't want to like bash all men, generally speaking, but I see more here like you, I think, than um, than some of the men in the story do. And even my partner in crime, Kevin, does. Yeah. I mean, it's just I, it's just so interesting. I mean, you, you see it time and time again where, you know, I mean, I just feel like Mich- Michelle has been so dismissed by so many people, law enforcement and and you really do this episode, I think, really, really paints that picture really well. And she the thing about Michelle, though, is like no matter how much she's dismissed, she's still going to come back and she's 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 a force, man. Yeah. What was it like spending so much time with her? I know you interviewed her sister, Kelly, too, but, you know, being with a family that is a, still grieving, but also fighting so hard. What was that like? I mean, it's awesome. I mean, she is an Amazon, no question about it. You know, she's just, she's, she's just got so many different parts to her. She's a force of nature. She's, she's not sense. I mean, she's not like a crier, right? I remember one time she's like, I'm not going to cry, Scott. I'm like, I don't need you to cry. You know, I just need to know what you're feeling. And, mm. and, and it reminds me to, you know, how oftentimes so many people, audience members or or police too. I mean, really, I think police in a, in a big regard kind of expect a certain emotional response from victims or from victims' families and make judgments based on an emotional response that they're expecting to get from them. And if they don't cry, if they sort of shift into this, I'm going to get shit done kind of mentality, which is what Michelle is all about. Then they start to question her because she's not the weepy daughter because her mom is dead. And that's not her at all. It is absolutely never has been her, never will be her. She has got a mission and she is going to get it done no matter what it takes. And I mean, being around her energy, which is very different to Kelly's. I mean, Kelly's in it for the long haul, too. But she's got a much softer sort of energy and she'll do whatever she needs to do to make things happen. But she kind of follows Michelle a little bit more. And I think the two of them as a team really balance each other out. But they're just I mean, it's great spending time with them. We're still in contact. I mean, we still we still text each other and we still we're still very much in contact. So it's they're they're a brave family and they're a strong family. The day that she disappeared, we lost everything. It's empty. You don't have that love anymore. You don't have that light. I miss everything. But just, you know, that that warmth and love and just comfort that she would give us. And, you know, that's something you can never really get back. Do you know where they are with the case today? Obviously, it's not closed for them, right? Yeah, I mean, they're, I mean, it's still a mystery. And that's, that's the thing. And I think that they're, they're frustrated that things haven't been solved. I know that they're still trying to, they're looking at alternative ways, I think, to look at different people to see if they can bring some kind of justice um, in a different way. They're, I mean, they're still fighting every day. I mean, Michelle has been fighting for 10 years to try to find justice, and, and she's going to keep doing that. I I know that that they're hoping that this episode brings some more tips. 
Um, I mean, we're all hoping that that somebody who knows some look, somebody knows something. And um, maybe time does make people a little bit more willing to tell their secrets. And hopefully this episode sparked something that somebody will come forward and say something that they've been holding secret for the last 10 years. How hopeful are you that that will happen, that this case will come to some conclusion because you've put this episode out in the world? I'm very hopeful something will happen. Um, Whether or not it actually does, I'm a little bit less sure. Well, Sky Borgman, the episode Lady in the Lake is great. Thank you so much for talking with me about it. Thank you, Rebecca. It's always nice to to sit and chat with you about this stuff because you bring such an interesting, intelligent perspective to it and a female perspective, which I adore. We've reached the end of this week's episode. Many thanks again to our guest, Sky Borgman. Fans of Unsolved Mysteries might remember these words from the late and irreplaceable former host of the show, Robert Stack. For every mystery, someone somewhere knows the truth. Perhaps that person is someone listening. Perhaps it's you. If you or someone you know has information on the disappearance and death of Joanne Romaine, go to unsolved.com to share your story or to learn more about the hundreds of other mysteries covered by the series. For more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to rate and review this show and share it with friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 2, Episode 6, Stolen Kids. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hans Dale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.